Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The rumors are flying fast and furious today. We've got a, a lot to get to, hoping to do some more draft profiles to, as well. But I think the biggest news of the day is out of Boston, where there had been precious little talk of Al Horford and his player option. Then yesterday, it comes that he was going to opt out. And today, it comes that the Celtics were really only offering a three-year deal if Horford wanted to stay, which it sounded like was his initial priority. And once the opt-out happened, happened turns out there are going to be some big offers on the table for Al Horford and this is something that we talked about I was so surprised that there had been so little buzz about his free agency because he fits everywhere yeah a piece that I never wrote but almost did was about the parallels between Al Horford's free agency and Clay Thompson's where I am I saw both of them as you know not necessarily being the priority for some of those teams with big dreams but making sense everywhere and you know they play different positions and Horford doesn't have the benefit of scarcity as much as Thompson does and now that Thompson is hurt then obviously that changes the conversation as well and so with Horford what I think makes this really interesting is the reporting from Steve Bullpet that Hor- basically that Horford will take that that he's at least th- thinking about planning whatever a signing a four-year deal elsewhere is that without any further information you could you could go a bunch of different directions with this I'll I'll list out a couple that I thought were compelling Dallas potentially playing alongside Kristaps Porzingis and Luka Doncic a little bit different because they're not a like a ready-made contender he I wouldn't as the Clippers sign him as like the only guy that they're adding this summer but let's say they expected to get Kawhi Leonard I think a Horford Leonard combination around the other pieces they have would be awesome so those were the two that I thought of as being the most compelling at first yeah Brooklyn seems unlikely because it doesn't seem like Al would like to reunite with Kyrie Irving well and they they have a clearer need at forward or at, you know at, at, a, at a wing than they do at, at center though they yeah. can make it work I mean, Horford's that damn good. Yeah. The Lakers, certainly. Indiana, if they wanted to play him at the four. Atlanta, although, you know, spending four years on him. I mean, that's the the biggest thing here is the years now. Age 33, what's necessarily going to be out there for him is a very interesting question. But certainly you would think the Lakers with LeBron James, that timeline. Even you would think if they only have the 23 million in space, we'll talk more about their space race in a second here, as it looks like they may try to do some machinations to open up more space than we thought they might have originally but even if they only have the 23 million you know, a four-year deal for al horford starting at that horford would be i think a, a very nice fit next to ad in theory at least now you know but certainly could be a better talent than they would have we talked about how they're going to stop anybody you put al horford and anthony davis together uh, it's going to look pretty good there so he's definitely going to have options uh, to be sure uh, and because you know he can play the four he can play the five he can shoot he can pass he can play multiple different kinds of systems defensively and how long that holds up for him at age 33 who knows but like we talked about there just are a lot more max slots out there than there are max players and i don't know that i would expect him to get the full max on a four-year deal but certainly something you know three years at 25 million a year four years even maybe 100 million wouldn't be completely insane uh especially for a team that's trying to win now and for whom he would really make a lot of sense and obviously he's a great well-known vet i mean hey even new orleans could be interested in him who knows uh the knicks as well uh, although it does if they sign kd it doesn't make as much sense because you're really paying that premium on the back end to get him this year uh, which will be the best uh, of those years so yeah uh, there could be a lot of places that would have interest in al horford uh Woj just recently wrote, wrote a piece saying that danny ainge and horford's 
uh jason glushan i think it's glushan is how you pronounce it aren't expected to restart talks uh, again and horford is entering free agency with the full expectation that three-year celtics career has ended what do you think about the celtics electing not to necessarily be competitive because you imagine if he opted out that he thought that they would work towards a new contract that was the reporting yesterday did the would the celtics be making the right move to not field a competitive offer for horford because it sounds like he maybe wanted to stay if in fact uh, the money was right I've been more ambivalent about the Celtics minus Kyrie than most. Uh, Kevin Pelton had a, a nice piece at ESPN on Tuesday talking about kind of how his model would project the idea of if they brought everybody back but Kyrie. And I believe the the indication there was that they would be a 49-win team. I think that's a little bit a little bit rosy. I, I know that they've done well without Kyrie in the past. Just I think some of the some of the limitations would come to bear more often. But again, they would still be a good regular season team. So maybe. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking more of their playoff issues rather than the regular season ones. And considering how Brown, Tatum, Rozier, should they bring him back, are about to get significantly more expensive, I can understand the reluctance to commit to that kind of a team. I don't I don't necessarily think that's worth it. Now, it kind of sucks that it would be Horford that is the guy to lose out there when, you know, Gordon Hayward has been, his limitations due to injury have been a big factor in in what has happened in this stretch. But I get it. You know, I, I, can, I can understand that. And, and for Ainge, the idea of committing to Horford in his mid to late 30s on a team that won't have much wiggle room to improve, I, I understand his reluctance there. Yeah, I mean, you then you're basically going to be pretty capped out with a Braun extension going forward. You're going to have really just the hope that Jalen Braun and Jason Tatum are going to get a lot better. Maybe Rozier to get back into championship contention that obviously Hayward improves a ton from where he was last year as well. And yeah, I don't, I don't think it would have been realistic for them to contend for a championship. And so makes sense that it might not make sense, especially to lock yourself into a 36 year old Al Horford making over $30 million a year or something like that. So I understand it from Boston's perspective. I totally understand it from Horford's perspective uh, as well, especially if he can get a fourth year elsewhere, which Boston, in theory, was not offering. Now Boston, if they move on from Marcus Morris uh, as well, who would have a $10 million cap hold, take off Horford, take off Irving, leave Terry Rozier's $9.2 million cap hold on the books, and they would have about $19.6 million in space. Remember, uh, they have those draft picks, 14, 20, and 22. Those would take up about $8 million million dollars in space as well there's talk that they might be trying to trade one of those picks you could see maybe them getting in on the mike conley derby now with all these picks uh, that they have uh, in the future uh, th- that might make some sense uh, in utah but might have some competition now uh, for conley they've been described as the front runners uh, up until recently maybe if they bring in conley but they, their other problem though is they really have nothing in the front court i mean they got daniel tice as a restricted free agent they got aaron baines who struggled to stay healthy this year as a lower end starting center and, and he's getting up there in age as well and robert williams so they really would desperately need experienced bigs and horford of course was so key to that defense which is really the way that this team is going to be good offensively you know they don't quite have the shooting they don't have that one primary score and last thing as it looks like this celtics era is ending i had two thoughts one is how crazy is it that it looks like brooklyn is a good bet to be better than the celtics next year after everything <laughs> that those two franchises have been through like if you had looked at it in 13 14 when the trade was made you would have said okay well you know brooklyn will be better for maybe the next four years than the celtics they'll be rebuilding and you know right about the time that these obligations end Boston will be coming into their own and Brooklyn will need to be rebuilt. And of course, it's been exactly the opposite. Brooklyn was terrible for most of that run, gave up uh, the number one and number three overall picks in 16 and 17. And then right as that period is ending, Brooklyn coming off a period of having none of their own draft picks, all of a sudden looking like they might be better than Boston by signing Boston's prize free agent that they got with one of the very Brooklyn picks uh, that was traded away. So, So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I think it really all started to go awry here for the Celtics when Gordon Hayward got hurt. That's the thing that really is not going to be talked about enough, I think, in this. If he's healthy in 17-18, they might go to the finals. If he's healthy last year, everything really kind of falls into place a a lot better. They would have had a much less disappointing year. They wouldn't have had a lot of the frustrations probably that they did have with him kind of being entitled. And then, I mean, not his fault, but he was gifted a lot of minutes that he didn't necessarily deserve early on. And guys like Braun and Tatum chafing behind him and 
there's you know they would have just been a lot better team with a lot better future and maybe Kyrie for all of the supposed personality conflicts probably a big reason he's leaving is he didn't see this as a championship caliber roster going forward and I don't blame him on that if Hayward is himself uh, maybe so much of this uh, is different and recall too that because they got Hayford Hayward they gave up some other potential opportunities that was like their one shot really to use cap space that was why this rebuild was so awesome they had all these good young players they had a great coach and they had cap space and then to just get a big fat zero for two years from their one chance at making a big free agent signing was just such a killer should we move from the the highly regarded teammate to the often acrimonious teammate chris paul the subject of quite a bit of reporting today first report from vince goodwill of yahoo sports saying that the delicate relationship between james harden and chris paul has been turned unsalvageable and the star players want a divorce you'll recall that James Harden had some cryptic comments of when asked what needed to change he said I know what it is but he wouldn't say in his uh comments after they lost game six more from Goodwill Paul went to Rockets management and demanded a trade and Harden issued a him or me edict following the Rockets second round loss to the Golden State Warriors further detail the that the two went nearly two months without speaking during the season Harden hasn't returned Paul's attempts at communicating this offseason and that the pair repeatedly got under each other's skin with petty acts in practices and game then of course comes the pushback Jonathan Fegan talking to Daryl Morey said Chris Paul and his representatives have never asked to trade him and moreover he will be on the Rockets next season he said he and Harden don't have issues with one another and he has spoken to both this season about free agency evaluations and plans and then Zach Lowe also spoke to Daryl Morey reiterating that there has been no trade demand from Chris Paul the quote for Morey tweet that I said it print it tweet it twice what do you think I trust Goodwill on this because a it makes sense given kind of the other elements that we we've heard before it also makes sense given the personality of these two guys tom haberstrow had a piece earlier i think it was during the season and he he pumped it again today of that paul and harden you know they have these that they the they never really assist each other and it makes sense i mean given Har- paul's reputation as a you know as being a hard driving guy that that could create points of conflict and also because maury as a part of his job has an incentive to not seem like they have to trade chris paul because if they have to trade Chris Paul, maybe that could lead to teams reducing their offers. And it also gets into an issue, which we can spend as much or as little time as you want on how much, like where, where Paul's valuation is because he is owed an absolute ton of money over the next three years. Yeah, and recall we just talked about yesterday how Tillman Fertitta is complaining about that contract, which uh, a detail that Goodwill reiterated uh, as well. Yeah, I find Goodwill's reporting a little more compelling just because every bit of spin that's come out of Houston over the last 365 days has been total BS. Whether it's the, uh, oh, we never mentioned the word luxury tax in a meeting from Tillman Fertitta. Of course, then he had a quote with Tim McMahon of, oh, I told Daryl, no, we just can't be in the repeater tax. We have to be out of the tax one of the next four years and oh oh how convenient that we're able to do it this year uh whether it's daryl morey angrily denouncing reports that carmelo anthony wouldn't play another game for the team and that the that brief star-crossed marriage was over although daryl didn't actually say that those reports were incorrect followed by carmelo anthony uh never playing another game for the team again so uh, whether it's the noise about mike d'antoni and the extension and his assistance not being retained and now this is probably what i would be most willing to buy i mean maybe the tension isn't as bad but i mean who would make up those kind of details like it's very rare that those kind of details just are made up in this day and age and then maybe the part that i would buy is daryl morris saying chris paul will be on the rockets next year because he's already tried to trade him and he can't do it (laughs) that's that's probably to me uh, what's uh, the most likely explanation for that comment and so that gets into the second part of this which is the Theoretically, if Chris Paul were on the market, and let's say it was a desire for the Rockets to trade him, is that possible? How would it happen? And so, start with the financials here. Chris Paul will make 124 million over the next three years. The third year of that is a player option, and. Uh, 
think he's gonna pick it up and i mean it's <laughs> it's it's crazy so he, and paul think about this just for matching salary purposes 38.5 million for the 1920 season so that's the number that that a lot of these teams are working with now some of them have cap space they have other ways of doing that but it's a lot of money and so paul you know he makes makes more money for longer than mike conley and i i you know and, and paul's dealing with a different kind of injuries conley you know had the had the issues two seasons ago but he looked more like himself last year than chris paul did that's for damn sure and so so then it gets into this very basic question which i think is the place to start which is i use the term the nene test chris paul's current teammate which is basically is a player on that contract a positive value or not and each team can make their own value calculation there the idea was always to make the nene test be kind of a, a general concept that can be applied and my personal interpretation is is no i mean we i mean he's a lot of money you worry about not only the amount of time he misses per season now but how he is going to age as a small point guard and so then it becomes well okay are there any teams that see it differently and if that is the case how the hell does this work because he makes more money than almost anybody that he could potentially be traded for yeah so yesterday i came up with some potential ideas for the number four pick today it's your turn you want to run a few of these by me i'll I'll react to them as uh, with the caveat that it's going to be hard and and maybe we'll prove that with some of these ideas sure so i the main group that i had were teams that i think paul would make a major difference on and they have like an outside shot of making the money work now almost all of these are predicated on the idea that at least in the long term that they think it's worth the cost so a lot of them they can match the salary this year with negative value contracts but then those guys come off the books and so i'll start with one if kemba walker leaves charlotte could do a deal involving nicola batum who has one fewer year uh, on his contract and biombo could be used as salary matching so for charlotte's purposes it's basically like hey our cap space isn't that valuable anymore at least we can stay viable chris paul does i i mean so so what do you think of that well so really i I think we we're probably going to run into this problem in a lot of your scenarios is you know why does houston want to do that right like there's there's no chris paul trade that i can think of that gets used you know chris paul is still a pretty good player there's no trade where they're going to get back anything close to equal talent so you know what why does houston want to do that other than just straight up savings which you know i wouldn't put that past tillman Fertitta because they are looking at the luxury tax this year well, even and, Fertitta and, acknowledges and it's that. worth mentioning on that point that clearing let's say theoretically a team could take on chris paul at least a part of it would be cap space then they're saving money not only in the long term but for this year they wouldn't be clearing enough money to like become players in free agency or anything like that it would just be you know maybe they could use the full mid-level things like that yeah i mean if they could just completely dump chris paul's salary for nothing and i mean there's not many teams that could just straight up take him the clippers ha 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 the knicks sacramento and that's about it as far as teams that would straight up take him i mean maybe there's a few others that would like indiana if they moved on from bogdanovich might be able to but even if they just got off of his contract for nothing that would put him at about 20 million in cap space so you know enough to do something maybe reload a, a little bit here i don't think that capella is really that much of a sweetener either and then you get into a real big salary matching problem so yeah i i mean yeah batum and biombo i mean that's you're a lot worse the next two years with those guys than you would be with paul sure minnesota there are two different configurations there one would be involving andrew wiggins the other would be probably jeff teague gorgy jang would be the major pieces going back Oof. i mean, maybe you could say it's possible that teague if he gets healthy and paul uh, on the decline might give you a little bit more offensively though paul still is a pretty solid defensive player tough to switch without chris paul uh, out there either you know he provides that he's a, a big foundation of their switching system if you go to just a normal small point guard who's not as tough or as strong as chris paul you're gonna get away from that um yeah i mean unless they really like wiggins which uh i'm guessing an analytically focused franchise would not be too high on him i have not worked out all of the machinations of this mostly because it's too outlandish but theoretically like i've only done the concept part of it i think it would be possible for the lakers to acquire chris paul basically the idea being that instead of signing somebody with cap space they could acquire chris paul's contract it would be more i think it would have to be more complicated than that but i do think without having have done all the legwork yet because i thought of it like five minutes before we recorded and went and didn't have the time i think it would be possible so that would be more like that would be probably the closest thing to the straight up salary dump we talked about before maybe they could include i don't know if if mo wagner or somebody like that counts as a sweetener yeah maybe it's more like a splendor uh i was hoping you were going to go stevia and go breaking bad reference but okay oh i i meant to go stevia actually 
actually uh yeah maybe that could be a possibility if the lakers just strike out on all the other free but that seems unlikely and even if they strike out on the max free agents you know splitting up that money and getting some decent role players to me seems like it makes more sense than bringing chris paul even for this year not to mention the two years after this one okay give me like two more here because i think we're uh if these are your best options i think we're running out of gas well i'll give you three quickly one boston involving gordon hayward yeah, that might be possible, or even just uh, using some of the twenty million in cap space that they might have, even if they and then maybe well, they the, don't bring the problem back there is they don't have a lot of filler salary. So yeah, well, well, I mean, if they don't have Rozier, you know, maybe it could be Marcus Smart involved. But again, I mean, I think Paul's contract probably has negative value. Agreed. So that's so, I mean, why Hayward, that's why to me the Hayward yeah. the Hayward conception was interesting because I would say Hayward's contract does as well, and and I think Hayward is a is an intriguing fit with what Houston is looking. for for if they're building around Harden yeah that's a good point I think he could fit in while you move Harden back to point guard Hayward Eric Gordon I mean that could be a a really good team if Hayward can get back to it where he's been before you know we'll see whether that's the the case or not but I mean I think he'll be better than he was last year overall and the good news about Hayward is at least he can fit in with his passing and shooting and decent defense and size he was much better defensively before the injury I thought in a lot of places so yeah that's the most realistic one I've heard so far although again it it, with you know that that makes a lot more sense if Al Horford is staying in Boston well and may, maybe that changes Ainge's calculus enough that you maybe you up the offer on Horford especially if you can get somebody of Chris Paul's caliber without giving up any of your good young guys you know then it's let's call it Paul Tatum Brown someone and Horford like that's a really interesting group moving forward yeah it does seem that ship uh, has sailed though. agreed uh, agreed but, but but no that that one's a little more realistic all right what, what so, else so then here? the last two are are more in the realm of the of the Charlotte version where it's, you know, filler salary, basically just another way of using future cap space. One is the Orlando Magic. They've been looking for a point guard forever. They have a ton of filler salary in various iterations. Mozgov, you know, it'd be funny if Mozgov parallels with Biombo, but then they have Fournier and a whole bunch of stuff. I don't, I mean, Houston would probably want Aaron Gordon in the deal or John Isaac. If I were Orlando, I would be pushing against that. And then the other one would be Detroit. Detroit has a lot of salary filler. I'm guessing they would try to avoid using Andre Drummond in that deal because the idea would probably be, you know, Paul could make Drummond a lot better, poor Blake Griffin in that hypothetical. But again, a team where I think Chris Paul, even though Blake did so much with the ball in his hands, where I think he could make a difference. But I like Orlando better of those two. Yeah. But again, I mean, yeah, it's all just like Houston likely taking a step back. Oh, I have another one. On the floor this year, yeah. Which would drive me completely insane, but something involving DeMar DeRozan. Yeah, no. That, that, he's such a bad fit. It's just an absolutely terrible fit uh, with Harden. Um, all right, got some more news here to get to. Uh, Woj said on TV that Kawhi not really interested in the Lakers. He's focused on the Clippers among the LA teams, and Woj expects it to be a Raptors-Clippers fight going forward. Let's turn to the Lakers now. Their plan is to try to expand the Anthony Davis trade and create the ability to open a max salary slot on July 6th. Now, this is not something that we really considered because the deal as reported is the deal as as was reported. And the way that this would work is you would get enough salary going back to the Pels, which would have to be more than is currently in there. Remember, they would have had to take AD into cap space, thus vaporizing some of their cap space. That was the big problem that was going to get them down to the 23 million. So what you would do in this instance is a conception of the deal in which the Lakers include Wagner, Isaac Bonga, and Jamorio Jones, guaranteeing some of his salary. That then gets you enough to bring back AD as long as he waives the vast majority of his trade bonus depending on on how much of Jones's salary is guaranteed. So the idea there is you've agreed to this trade and that trade actually works in terms of matching salary if the Lakers are over the cap. So what they would do is just pretend like the trade hasn't happened yet because it wouldn't have officially happened yet. So you're not actually really pretending. And then just as it sits with all those guys on their roster from before the AD trade, they had 32.5 million in space. And so they could then sign guys into that 32.5 million and then make the trade to get AD if he waived some of the trade bonus the report has been that he is not going to waive that trade bonus which is over four million dollars and so then the only way the lakers could do it would maybe be by signing and trading a current free agent to get enough matching salary alex caruso who's coming off of a two-way has been
been mentioned uh, by Eric Pincus as a way to have him not waive the trade bonus and still make this trade legal for AD. Now, clearly, the Lakers didn't really seem to have thought about this beforehand. Otherwise, the conception of the trade that they agreed to could easily have included all of these guys. No problem, you would think. Uh, I mean, maybe the Pels didn't want to take back some of these guys in salary, but aside from that it's uh it shouldn't have been too difficult given the amount of stuff that they're giving up doesn't seem like the Pels want to wait until the 30th of July when you can get that same matching salary in the form of a signed number four pick and then trade him to, to get up to the amount of salary for AD so really it's in the hands of AD and in the hands of the Pels here to either change the deal waive the trade bonus some combination thereof to get the Lakers up to that 32 point five million otherwise they're between 27 if ad waives the trade bonus but it's the initial conception of the trade or the initial conception of the trade that involves ad not waiving the trade bonus 23 million so still some to be written here but there is a scenario in which the lakers could still have the 32.5 million and not have to wait until uh, july 30th to consummate the trade yeah it overwhelmingly looks like the lakers didn't think this through just because it could have been done in conjunction and it wasn't so it wasn't in the Pelicans trade. It also wasn't done with a third party and it absolutely could have. So I'm, I'm sure there are some that are trying to spin it of like, hey, they're they're tactical geniuses or they're going to do this yeah. stuff. It's like, no. Well, well, and you know what this smacks of too? All of the reports out of Lakerland have indicated that Rob Polinka operates in very insular fashion. And, you know, the Lakers do have cap experts that are there and perhaps such experts were not really consulted on the parameters of this trade, whether they're concerned about leaks whether Polinka doesn't operate that way whatever it is but it does seem like and you know the the pelicans i'm sure probably knew all this stuff but they didn't care it's the, the most favorable conception to them to not have to take on Wagner and bonga i mean i don't know who knows maybe they, maybe they want those guys but uh and not have to wait until july 30th but now uh they've agreed on the trade in theory it's out there in the media maybe the lakers can just say hey you know what yeah we agreed but too bad we're still not we're not doing it unless you make these additional concessions and frankly if i were the pels and i was really facing by that number one i'd say oh really well it's out there in the media and you guys need ad more than we need the, this deal this specific deal done but in reality both of them need each other so it'll be an interesting game of chicken to see if the deal's parameters get changed or not and what kind of concessions are extracted if in fact the deal is changed where do you want to go next here we can go to the the long national bout of intrigue is now concluded dwight powell has officially opted into his mavericks contract and this has gone a couple different ways and think dallas can still sign him to an extension he is still eligible and we both thought initially that if he was going to return to the mavericks that he would opt out sign at a lower salary for more years so that would clear additional cap space that is that is now off the table but they can still agree to a longer term deal using you know jumping off of this in a couple of different directions john gavoni reporting that the hawks have been trying to move up with the number eight and ten picks as bait but their offer to the knicks for the number three pick was apparently rebuffed the pelicans are considering maybe trading number four four eight and ten if i'm the hawks i don't know what they want with the number four pick frankly of like who is going to be there when they already have a point i mean the the only guys who in my mind that we've looked at who are sexy enough to really be excited about at number four would be garland and and maybe white and of course those guys play the same position as trey young who i think i like better than either of those two so far when you consider what he did his rookie year so if you're gonna i mean i think if you're not drafting a point guard you probably have similar quality players frankly available at eight and maybe ten as you would at four certainly not enough to give up two picks to move up and generally teams pay a premium for moving up when you consider the actual production that generally comes from those less kp had a nice piece on that today also some reporting this seems kind of smokescreeny that Darius Garland is having a last minute workout with the Knicks he's going to miss a media session so he can do this workout on Wednesday and the Knicks might actually be considering him at three I'm guessing that that is just to try to maybe open up some trade possibilities for three it seems unlikely to me that they would go there uh the last minute nature of it. it's like oh really like we've known that we've had the number three pick for this long we've known we had a high lottery pick for this long and we're just bringing in this guy for a workout that we think we're 
going to pick one day before the draft it seems very ostentatious although brian windhorst did say that there have been some teams that garland has had secret workouts with uh, over the last few weeks and uh, garland is healthy and is expected to play in summer league assuming that his team approves coming off of that meniscus injury all right you want to do a little mini mini scouting report here well actually i'll just mention one other thing mostly because the reporting on it just abused me so much that so shams trania had a had a thing basically about the about basically uh, that Kyrie Irving has been communicative and forthright with Celtics officials this is going off the stuff early in the day that he had been ghosting them basically what what Shams was reporting is that Kyrie's been open with them and just saying I'm gone and he maybe he thought that was sufficient yeah and certainly the AD trade talks uh, would indicate that they are well aware and uh, Shams also reporting that the the Celtics are quite prepared for a future without Kyrie and well maybe not prepared but accepting the fact that it's going to happen no no Kyrie no Al Horford going forward here you alluded to it but we also never said the other piece of news I, I don't think we just didn't have it in the plan with NBA champion Harrison Barnes oh yeah how did I forget to, to put that in so Barnes is actually now going to opt out there was some of the he was due 25 million this year that opt out now pushes the Kings to 61.9 million dollars in cap space and there's certainly talk that he could return to Sacramento although the language was not as strong coincidentally as that when Al Horford was being discussed yesterday but Barnes another guy who could have a, a market now he was set to make 25 next year so by opting out of that you would imagine that he thinks he has something on the order of like 30 or 40 million dollars guaranteed above that 25 million that that he was going to make to make it worth it to opt out whether that's with the Kings or elsewhere but Barnes while he is not the greatest player his shooting ability ability to guard the three and the four okay makes him another guy who has some appeal a lot of places even if he isn't that great the fact that he could have a lot of suitors could very easily drive his market price up a little bit but you know it would seem to me okay more than 15 million a year for him over a long-term deal wouldn't make much sense you know maybe it's uh so i'm very very interested to see what he's going to get that that is fascinating especially if what he gets is not in sacramento and then where the hell does sacramento go is 61 million in space they're right back to really not having much at the three all right let's talk about the player long considered one of the most confounding in the nba draft and that's uh cam reddish 6'9 208 seven foot wingspan number three overall recruit right right in that range at duke and then proceeded to have just an awful statistical season yeah i mean i think one of the best ways of describing the, the struggles he had at duke was that reddish despite having a rep as being a shooter and duke needing shooting in the worst way put up a 50 percent true shooting on 25% usage as a Blue Devil. And he shot 33% on his threes and 77% from the line, but he shot 39% on two. Yeah, that is about as low as it gets for an NBA draft prospect. Andrew Harrison is the only other guy I can recall off the top of my head as a guy who shot that poorly on twos, and Harrison was rightfully a second round pick. Now, the situation, of course, needs to be considered in a number of ways. Number one, he was their only shooter, basically. So anytime he was trying to drive to the rim in the half court, he's running into just a ton of body that said his finishing was extremely disappointing 26 of 55 at the rim in the half court and only four of 16 on floaters hoop math had him at 51 percent overall at the rim and that to me was much more disappointing the shooting 33 percent you know he shoots it pretty well he was taking some difficult attempts he was not used to taking as many catch and shoots he's actually a much better shooter off the dribble relative to what people normally shoot off the dribble shoot 77 percent from the free throw line i'm not feeling terrible about his ability to shoot yeah you'd like it to be better than 33 percent but he is their only shooter he was contested a lot of the time things really broke down in particular when he was contested although i'm a little wary of that designation on synergy because it's just manually tracked of what's contested and what isn't and just naturally you're more likely to decide that a miss is contested than a make nonetheless it was really that finishing at the rim that was the biggest disappointment in his season that made him so incredibly inefficient yeah and something you see on the video is how he's very aggressive avoiding contact you know he has some spectacular finishes like when some of those went in they were really impressive like some scoop reverse layups and some of those sorts of plays the problem was a lot of them didn't go in and he didn't have those plays where you know maybe it wasn't as strong of a contest and he just bounces off the guy a little bit and i mean reddish six eight seven one wingspan even if he is on the 
thin side, you still think that he could do a lot more in those circumstances. And it's it's so hard to be efficient. And, you know, some of them, as you said, I think there are mitigating circumstances, but the way he approached those situations was still really concerning. Yeah, every once in a while he would try with the more confrontational finishing, but that usually failed. Schmitz made a great point on his video. Again, this is a mini scout, to be clear. So we, you know, probably watched two three hours you know maybe one full game and a bunch of clips this is not our full scout where we really spent about a day on it so this is kind of more of a here's what he is here's some facts about strengths and weaknesses as opposed to a projection of exactly what he's going to be although i think watching any more of reddish probably wouldn't have helped me in that regard anyway because he is so confounding but yeah i think you know he either just slams right into guys with no real plan guys who are already in position or you know he's going for these crazy double pumps that that aren't going to go in a lot also just not really much of a one foot leaper likes to leap off a two generally just looking at him and the type of prospect he is and how highly rated he was you think of him as being more athletic than he actually is he's you know i'd say a relatively average finisher at the rim in terms of his leaping ability a below average finisher but in terms of his leaping ability attacking the basket he's not really going to dunk on you didn't have many of those sometimes he'll get out in transition and extend out for for a dunk but it He's not thinking of going up and just yoking it on people off of one or two feet. Now, if he had more space if he has more coaching you know finishing at the rim is something that could be improved he is just a very smooth natural athlete who has a lot of moves in his bag so i think there's certainly a hope that this could be improved and overall his stats were much much better at the aau level than at duke and he was just in about the worst possible situation other than just you know having guys setting him up every once in a while but as the only shooter he wasn't even going to be open that for threes that often um his off the dribble shooting is probably his best offensive skill at this point he's got a pretty good package able to create some space some has like some really nice like spin pull back plays the triple threat is okay he can look smooth going to the basket although again just not very strong or physical could falls down a lot and this that brings me to the next bit of context which is he had this core muscle injury surgery and that hasn't helped him in workouts but when you see a lot of his lack of physicality i don't know how long it was that that injury was bothering him we've never gotten any reporting on that that i'm aware of but it wouldn't shock me if that's something that was bothering him all year because there's just so many times where he would just get knocked over or just fall down or and yeah you know he's not the most intense guy necessarily the the most physical guy you know that wasn't his reputation coming in he had a reputation as somewhat of a coaster even coming in but you know this was more than you'll see from a lot of guys in terms of just like not having the core strength so maybe that's just a result of of this injury to some degree it very well could be and i i I think one of the and I understand that I think this makes makes reddish polarizing that the high points for him were genuinely really interesting and I think this can function as a transition to the defensive end and so I ended up just because I got fascinated by it watching most of his blocks and steals and the film on those which obviously you know those are going to be more active plays because that's usually the way it happens unless the ball just falls in your hands on those plays he looked a lot more engaged he looked active like the steals looked really good it was his hands in the right place using his wingspan all that kind of stuff but then when you watch some of the general film you didn't see it possession by possession yeah and he's not like a shark but 2.1 steals per 40 minutes uh, is pretty good and 0.8 blocks he could look really good just completely cutting guys off at at times other times if he did get beaten he he was able to affect the shot from behind it with that 7-1 wingspan not very physical again like in the post or boxing out or, or hitting the defensive glass so they had plenty rebounders on this team like barrett and zion so you know that wasn't something that was he was necessarily asked to do that much so i I think he has pretty solid defensive potential again you wonder about the mentality but this is a one one and done guy and i his defense was much better than i was expecting to see i'll put it that way just given kind of his coasting reputation uh he did foul a ton i think overall his iq and decision making on both ends is not uh, amazing like for example he turned it over on over 30% of his pick and roll possessions offensively and he drove into traffic so many times 
Oh yeah, like like because yeah, there you know there's gonna be traffic at the rim. That doesn't mean you have to run into it every time. The one that drove me the most crazy was there was a play where I I, I thought I wrote down which team it was against, where he got an offensive rebound. It kind of bounced him at the free throw line, and because it was a shot around the basket, I think Zion missed it. One of the few misses he had in the air, and Reddish gets the ball at the free throw line. Four guys are standing between him and the basket, and he could have maybe taken the free throw line jumper. College the shot clock resets, so he could have done any number number of other things. Instead, he drives straight into those four guys and turns the ball over. And I'm just going completely insane watching the film because I'm just like, you could do anything else but that and it would have been fine. And he did exactly the wrong thing. Yeah, now he had 25% usage. Remember, he's playing with RJ, who's, uh, you know, quite ball dominant. He's playing with, with Zion, but he was this high recruit. And I'm sure people are always saying, be aggressive, be aggressive. Kind of like Andrew Wiggins, right? Like, remember Andrew Wiggins is like, oh, he's not aggressive enough. He's not aggressive enough. And so, and, and just having the pressure of trying to be a, a high draft pick and feeling like you have to do something. But on this Duke team, with the lack of shooting they have, there's not that much to do other than just spot up. And so, he feels like he needs to do more than that and so yeah certainly he could have had much better decision making again there is a little bit of an explanation for why it looked so bad for him at at times um and i want to give you his pick and roll stats too which uh, you know small sample so buyer beware here but he was 14 of 25 out of pick and roll i did mention he turned it over 33 percent of the time but 75 percent e field goal percentage on jumpers out of the the pick and roll which is awesome it looks very comfortable again you know the iso game again relative to the rest of his game it looked a lot better uh but you know a lot of that is again creating space uh shooting over the top his his shot is kind of a low release point but shoots it very easily able to shoot it on the move he, he did a pretty good job of coming off screens reading those that they went to those a, a fair amount for him as well he knew when to flare and when to curl unfortunately when he curl he'd just curl into eight guys because that was just the, the nature of duke spacing you know he's not like sprinting off of screens to the three-point line and just stopping on a dime and rising up reggie miller style but he was able to come off of screens uh, and flare or come off a wide pin down so, and that could look okay so i don't know i, I like i don't really have any kind of a verdict on him. i mean there's certainly major concerns but he was much better at the lower levels he had this injury he was in a really bad situation there's some things he can do that look pretty good you could see how maybe he might be able to be a secondary ball handler he has more ball skills than you know say nasir little who, who's in this category uh saku dumbuya who we're going to talk about it in a second for example but you wonder whether he's ever going to be able to be efficient enough to really make any of that worth looking at for an nba team you know i think i still believe in his jump shot more than say like nasir littles uh, again and he's got a lot more versatility to his jump shot than maybe someone like hunter or the hunter you know it's a little bit different a position as a combo forward reddish is, i think is really more of a pure small forward more comfortable guarding guys on the perimeter smaller players so where does he fit in you know he, he could very easily be the best of those guys and he could very easily be the worst of those guys but certainly this year was so bad for him from a statistical standpoint that when you're at the point of like okay he shows some flashes but you really have to make excuses for him to come up with a rationale for why he's going to look good at the next level based on what he put on film in college that's tough would you so i think he has the highest ceiling of those three because the flashes that are there and and everything else but those three being uh dumbuya and little and little yeah, yeah. but the likelihood of reaching that ceiling is is nebulous at best and that's what's what's so what's so weird about with reddish is like i i saw these moments and i'm like i want to believe that it's just the situation but i firmly believe also that if i watched more film on him if we weren't doing a mini scout if we were doing a full scout that i would like him a lot less like because you hear a lot that's a great point you hear a lot about the people who who know his game and all, all the the floatiness and all that type of stuff so i i definitely think there's a a meaningful chance that he was just in the wrong situation and that and also like there are players of his mold who just fit better in the pro game because there's more spacing and he's not you know in certain ways he's not asked to do as much the idea that oh i have to be aggressive because i don't get the ball very much those sorts of things and i think a lot of the like driving into traffic and all that i think it can be coached out of him if he is coachable but i don't have faith based on what i saw that while those things all are can be true that that it's definitely going to happen that he's going to figure all this stuff out so it's tough and it 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 is it does kind of make me happy in a way that we don't spend as much time on the draft because i would hate to stake my reputation on this guy yeah well uh i'm sure general managers are feeling the same way uh 
and i thought that his performance at the nike hoop summit last year was pretty similar to what we saw at duke that was more uh, along those lines and that eybl stuff that's two years ago now you know playing against guys who are a lot younger me perhaps he just simply hasn't developed uh, as much and, and yeah i mean the, the finishing is just such a concern the lack of the one foot finishing i mean that's you know he's not a guy who's going to get out in transition and really dominate you in transition either running the lanes finishing at the rim you know he, he's more wants to kind of hang out and shoot the three uh and just an overall i mean i want to say a lack of intensity because he did show that at times on the defensive end uh but casual approach lack of passing vision not a ton of feel it's not a great draft but but yeah i mean like i said you know if you're going to tell me like he could very easily be if you want to throw hunter and culver in there too he could easily be the best of all these guys i mean there's so many of these wing combo forward types that are right in this range and uh, i can't say that i have a great feel for who's going to be the best of that group i mean i probably would still go with reddish over culver i would say i'm just really low on culver just due to his his the concerns about the jump shot uh because i do think reddish has a little bit more upside but uh you know again i'm not even certain of that so uh, should we turn to uh, Seku now? Let's do it. I, so he has a, a, an interesting story in terms of his his path to this point. I actually saw him at Basketball Without Borders in, in 2018, if memory serves. And maybe before that, I, I would have to go back to look at like Adidas Nations because he's been in the mix for such a long time. Six foot nine, 210 pounds with a 6'11 wingspan, 8'11 standing reach. So if you want to kind of a frame for did, that. Did you say 210 pounds? That's the, what I saw. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, some of the, information that i saw was that he was actually thicker you know in the 230s 240s range and then he lost weight and was at 220 or so during uh, his season season in uh, limoges okay yeah i can't remember which which place i got that from um but yeah it's yeah a- i mean that but but anyway yeah and uh 811 standing reach uh, yeah uh, for him so the comparison like so uh schmitz has this in one of the pieces the guy that i thought of when going through it was and it, a lot of people don't remember this like mohark was as a draft prospect like it's kind kind of kind of a similar similar frame and build and all that kind of stuff so i i I, he's a little bit thicker than that but that's kind of the idea maybe paul george but i i I don't think it's quite quite all the way there and so dumbuya born in guinea but moved to france at the age of one he turned pro at 15 and was playing in the number two french league and was one best young player second year there then joined pro pro a this year which is the best league in france played 18 minutes a game seven points three rebounds and he had he he hasn't done a ton internationally like in the FIBA world but he did play in the under 18s in 2016 and was in what's called the all-star five included including his French teammate and current NBA player Frank Nokina yeah and he also was 16 yeah playing up a a couple of years uh, at that time uh had a disappointing couple of years uh, in pro B and then in moving up actually looked much better this year it came back from a thumb injury and and really was playing a lot better for one of the, the better teams in pro a sorry i i uh, my french pronunciation is not great uh few other stats on him 29 out of 82 32 percent from three of course that is from the international line 67 percent from the foul line on 41 attempts 27 assists in 714 minutes six percent offensive rebounding and only 16 percent defense rebounds fouled a, a ton uh but also the age doesn't turn 19 until december 23rd so he's one of these guys like Giannis, like dragon ben international guys who are barely eligible for the draft this year and, and that youth is certainly something to be considered that he, he's a year or more younger than a lot of these guys uh, that he's going to be compared to in this range in the draft and also kp did his statistical translations today first time we've seen his internationals he actually is number three uh on kp's mix of stats uh, and scouting board so that's uh and he was playing real minutes for a pretty decent team you know, going into the French playoffs uh, this season. So I think I'll start this with a question to you, which is what is his ideal offensive role and what skills can Seku develop to move beyond that role? Yeah, so, uh, you know, he's kind of combo forwardy at this point in time, looks a little bit more like a three than a four, though he's got that 8-11 standing reach. I mean, that is, and 6-9, that is definitely combo forward size in the NBA. Largely the role that he was playing for Limoges is 
just spotting up around pick and rolls uh, on the outside and the jumper i thought actually looked pretty good especially considering the distance that he's shooting from you know he he could be kind of casual he doesn't necessarily hold his follow-through but he gets the ball off quickly he can even show some ability to shoot on the move off of handoffs on occasion and yeah 32 percent. but remember this is the international line and he, he's also a year younger than some of these other guys so i i think the the jump shot can get i don't think he's going to be a lights out shooter but i think the jump shot can get to a point where it's going to be a strength for him as a spot-up shooter so that's probably most of what he's going to be doing uh his athleticism is you know probably the best i would say you know right up there with nasir little maybe a little bit below there uh, among this group of, of wing slash combo forwards that, that we're talking about and, and so i think he can make uh, have a good effect on the offensive glass and uh, as a cutter he actually showed a really nice facility uh, for cutting uh, getting to the rim that way uh showed a little bit of grab and go ability um again it's worth noting he's playing on like a real european team these guys are not really asked to expand their role offensively that much so yeah you know, I, I see him likely being you know more of a support guy i think though you know if you had the moharkless comparison i know you weren't talking about necessarily his skill level but you know i see him moving beyond that kind of just garden variety combo forward kind of guy i think he's got some ability to dribble the ball attack off the dribble and shoot the three at a high rate maybe even if you know you could see him ending up as more of like a trevor ariza kind of shooter where you know he can shoot around 35 percent but gets a lot of attempts up uh and maybe he's even more of a natural shooter than ariza ariza was kind of a non-shooter in college as i recall so you can correct me there if uh i'm misremembering since you saw him all the time i'm trying to remember i don't i don't remember him shooting a ton of jumpers in college it, it, it was really it wasn't really i think until you know 2009 with the lakers that ariza really became a regular three-point shooter and he had like a crazy run in that 2009 playoffs so that was beyond where he'd been but in any event i pulled the numbers ariza yeah 24 from three 18 of 76 in his one year at ucla okay so to give you more of an idea of what his offensive role has been he's playing mostly as a three he did post up some you know i, I liked that when he would run the floor he would go for some transition post-ups not a ton of moves there yet uh but 35 percent of his possessions is spot up 20 percent in transition not being asked to be a role man at all pretty much exclusively a perimeter player um but the off the dribble game as far as the jump shot is very much a work in progress uh, as they say by which i mean it's terrible he had five points on 19 possessions in the pick and roll and was only 35 out of 130 on jumpers in the half court he improved his shooting as the season went along but he was five out of 26 on jumpers off the dribble in the half court so i do like his form a lot he's no left hand involvement he gets it off smoothly pretty compact stroke generally like the arc he's not very consistent and he kind of snake bites it doesn't follow through entirely uh and he showed a little bit of passing vision as well as the season went along some left and right-handed hook passes to the weak side at certain times you know it's, he had more turnovers than assists so it's not, and they are stingier with assists in, in europe as well but so it's not a strength of his but he showed some chances especially for a guy who is mostly a, a play finisher to make some good looks it's something i could potentially see evolving to be sure i don't have much of a disagreement with with what you just ran through but i'll i'll say one disagreement and one other point i want to emphasize so i'll start with the point to emphasize i really like his motor and like offensively you could see moments where it's like you know he 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 pushed his way around like a, a, a like to get around a screen or to to get into a position for it and having just watched a few of these other guys you know just like the possession by possession of just like actually moving through his stuff i thought that was really nice but i'm less positive about his jump shot than you i think it's i think the things that i don't love about it are correctable and it, it is good that his shot has gotten better over the last couple of years one thing i noticed watching more of him in sequence was it feels like he's leaning back a little bit on his jumper and i don't mean a fadeaway i just think that his body his like forward and backward balance is a little bit wrong and maybe that's just it, it also maybe it was the camera angle and because it, it was a little bit higher on some of the french stuff and i was seeing it differently and just miscalibrated a little bit but it looked to me like it was a little bit off and that can be corrected but i'm just a little bit more skeptical than you but also that's you know like the shooting it's an, it's an important part of his value just like it is for everybody who's not dynamic on ball and he's not dynamic on ball but i do like a lot of kind of the other the other pieces of it and and as as long as you don't make him like create off the pick and roll i think it'll work out fine yeah his finishing you know he can't get up for some big dunks he had a couple of coast to coast he had one beautiful euro step in transition into a left-handed dunk that was quite eye-popping uh, but i would say you know he's not a natural 
natural in terms of his finishing feel uh you know didn't display much in the way of floaters or touch finishes yeah i just saw that in my notes i'm like i said it feels like he misses more contested shots of the rim than someone with his physical profile should that's about yeah that's about in line with that and while he will is a willing rebounder especially on the offensive end going to the glass uh you know especially considering he's playing the three the six percent offensive rebounds that's pretty good but his second jump is only average you know i think he's more of a good to very good athlete than just a real eye-popping like nuclear guy who's just going to detonate on people with dunks um defensively he was asked to switch a lot so we didn't see as much of him in a conventional pick and roll defense but it didn't go well for him in those situations because he's not really very good at directing the ball or, or getting over screens uh you know again a lot of it was he'd be guarding the guy in the corner and that guy would run up towards the top and then he'd just switch that action and so one of the guards would just be out there when that guy would run the pick and roll eventually uh definitely just you know i wouldn't describe it as a naturally intense defender i mentioned that he he fouls a lot a lot of that comes from just not quite being in a stance we still saw him walking too much and really problems with intensity were what plagued him the last two years he improved a ton in that area this season as he had to to get on the floor uh i wouldn't say that he has a ton of natural help or rim protecting instincts either yeah he did have one play that i really liked where seku got he started on the on a guy in the opposite corner three and saw that the roll man was breaking down and got all the way in and contested the shot but it didn't happen very often i just that play stuck out because i'm like oh man he doesn't usually do that yeah i mean again in a lot of these position possessions he's playing the guy in the corner on a pick and roll and so uh, that's uh, a difficult position to make plays out of uh you know i thought he lost guys off the ball to some degree more than he really should have as well or you know again the the closeouts weren't amazing or wouldn't be in a stance when the guy caught the ball and got blown by now the few times that he was sliding his feet it looked pretty good and again the the age that he's at uh, i was hoping to see just a little bit more from him defensively though i mean i don't think he was you know getting attacked constantly or anything like that but i wasn't like wowed by what what he could bring but i mean this is this is another one where i mean these guys are just so hard to evaluate at, at this position unless he's just an absolute top prospect i mean some of the guys that you look at paul george Kawhi leonard Giannis, who was a wing more of a wing earlier in his career it's very rare that you see these wings i mean and even andrew wiggins who was you know one of the higher ranked wings that's been drafted you know for him to be drafted number one he didn't work out like these guys are tough to evaluate they it, it takes them a long time to develop a skill level that matches with their athleticism Reddish had the issues with his role. Seku is just being asked to spot up mostly, you know, playing against men. And, you know, the fact that he can even earn minutes and get on the floor and not kill them is good, but you're not seeing him in a, in a role where you have an idea of whether he can do more or not. So it's very tough to evaluate these guys. I mean, I, I would say I would have Seku probably at the top of this group, especially just because of the level of competition he's playing at his age. The fact that I probably like his jumper close to the most of any of these guys but really just as a respect for the fact that he's playing in like a real pro league at 18 and contributing and being as young as he is and having probably i would say probably the best physical profile of any of these guys maybe little would be the only one who i i would say is better but even little is not you know an amazing one foot leaper either uh and seku has much more size than little does so i i would probably put him at the top of this heap of of all these wings slash combo forwards that we've evaluated right now with of course the caveat that we haven't spent as much time on him and that you know i think a lot of these guys are tough to evaluate when you look at the shooting in particular uh, trying to project that out and, consi- and, and, and considering and shooting is a swing it. skill yeah. for all of these guys it, it gets yeah. even more complicated and, and since i'm a little bit lower well maybe even more than a little bit lower on on seku's jump shot i'm i'm a little bit lower on him as a player not that i'm high on anybody else it's it's a challenge but something to be said for this group i haven't gone poured through the mock draft yet i deliberately wait until we've done a about as much analysis as we're going to do before kind of because i feel like that colors my colors my analysis like oh man why is this guy at six he should be at 16 or something like that but you brought up wiggins and i think that there is a very different conversation to be had about drafting players like this especially doing so in volume outside of the top picks because if they're all coin flips and it's not as costly a coin flip for you because the the opportunity cost of taking him at number one or something like that for example like the atlanta hawks 
if you can take two of these guys and just assume that one of them isn't going to work i think that's a pretty sweet luxury to have yeah and i think this is as weird as it is to say kind of a good draft to have multiple picks in because you can you've got a better chance at least finding one guy who works and i think that's you know that's a way to approach it that may make more sense especially in this draft all right uh anything else to talk about here before we go do we have to do oh we're gonna do jackson hayes i'll talk about him a little bit yeah let's do that all right god i'm uh starting to get delirious here at this time of year so hayes my thought on him you know he's basically your prototypical rim protecting skinny rim running center uh pretty much skeptical of any center in the top 10 top 15 at this point given how many centers are, are out there and you know i'm not sure that hayes is like the best of this group by any means like i probably like jared allen you know another texas center a little bit better than him even though allen went a little lower i thought he went too low a couple of years ago but certainly has some potential it's just you know a center who is going to be limited offensively like that's what he's going to be you know he's, he's not going to be a post-up threat very likely uh, unless he makes major strides in his feel and his moves and his strength and, and all sorts of i mean he didn't even attempt i think he attempted one jumper this year though he did shoot it well from the free throw line so it's just the, the player archetype of like yeah you know I, I think he could be pretty effective he looks like that nine three standing reach you you see every bit of that a number of times but i'm uh just a little skeptical of using a pick uh, on a player like that in the top 10 top 15 ish range we're of similar minds with hayes uh i i think his, some of his background stuff is really interesting went to high school in cincinnati grew a foot in high school so that's really what changed him as as a prospect because that was a big man you can do a lot more things and his dad played in the nfl as a tight end coach of the Bengals. his mom was a talented college player in her own right at drake and hayes came out of nowhere on draft boards he just turned 19 in may and i mean the idea was that he was probably going to be at texas for a couple of years and figure it out but then he just really put it together and what a couple of things struck me on his film so one i like a lot of the kind of the building blocks defensively but i wonder how that actualizes in a way that does parallel jared allen i like jared allen better as an overall prospect but i also thought jared allen was really underdrafted like i had him as a lot like a sure shot lottery guy he he and og were those two guys for me in that class that i have no idea why they fell as far as they did but what concerns me about hayes like talented shot blocker can block shots with either hand i liked his you know his steel highlights weren't great but his blocks looked really good but what concerns me is him as an overall defensive player in the nba because his rebounding isn't great he he plays with force but in the way that works a lot better against college players than pro players because pro players are just so much physically stronger and hayes can get stronger too but you see that with jared allen like jared allen's a good player he you know i like his feistiness and all that type of stuff but he's not in the same conversation as the best of the best defensively and in all likelihood will never be yeah you know hayes i thought he is more impressive running in a straight line he's got really a lot of speed i think offensively the way like like when he would slip screens they ran a couple of plays for that where he would slip screens and be on top of the rim and a second and just dunking it before anyone could react like that his ability to roll hard to the rim if he continues to do that in the pros and put pressure on it like he's not just an absolute skywalker in terms of his ability to go get alley-oops but he's certainly you know on the higher end of centers for that with that crazy standing reach he has some small ability to turn over his left shoulder for a very close hook shot in the post like his natural touch is not terrible he shot 74 percent from the foul line but you know not much ability to kind of power up inside very weak physically does not play physically at all and then as a lateral athlete moving his feet i wasn't as impressed i think you know he can be i wouldn't expect him to be a huge switch guy except you know maybe right at the end of the clock whereas conventional pick and roll i think he can be a lot better you know i think he can be a great verticality guy you know i would expect him to develop into you know a lower end starting center you could see that there's again so many of these guys and you just think back to last draft where robert williams and mitch robinson were drafted you know 20s and 30s and you know i don't think that hayes is necessarily better than either of those guys now obviously williams has uh, his own issues uh, in terms of like actually being on time and attitude and that kind of stuff but you know i think just in, in terms of physically what what i saw i like both of those guys better than hayes i mean it, the arms are really long though like when he extends his arms you see it and you're like oh shit like he is really like covering a lot of well, it, a lot of ground and, here and on top of that when he's in position i really liked some of like a lot of what hayes did defensively you know guys just couldn't really get around him they couldn't they couldn't get a shot up and especially like this is the difference for me between college and pro guys it's just that they didn't have the college players didn't have enough tools in their toolbox and so hayes is just when he's there they're just like bullshit but the 
the concerns for me, especially considering the game has evolved and I don't know enough about Texas's current coaching staff and system and all that to know this is, is that he's very efficient offensively, but we didn't see a lot of like depth to his game. His, like the, the passing was, didn't really seem particularly natural. I watched his assists, watched some of his turnovers and. Oh, oh yeah. You had time to watch all eight of his assists. All eight. Yeah. I watched all eight of his and then, um, and I, I think one of them might've even been mislabeled and, um, Hayes took three jump shots, all what a credit is jump shots. So some of the hooks and all that, that's just in the way that synergy counts it. I think it's just, they have to be a little bit further out. And I cracked up because I'm like, oh, he only has three. I have to watch all of them. I was expecting it to be just like late clock jumpers. They were, you could almost like create them in a lab as like the things that synergy counts as jump shots, but most people would not. So it was like a, <laughs> a runner where he started right outside the restricted area and then ended up in the restricted area when he actually took it. Like that's, that's one of his jump shots. The other two were basically the same type of thing. And I just started cracking up because it was just, and so this isn't the eighties where it's, where the circumstances like, oh man, you know, like if a guy had it, it like, or even Carl Anthony Towns, where he was horribly misused at, at Kentucky in terms of as a jump shooter, like Cal Parry did a lot of other things. But with Hayes, my instinct is if a guy has any more than that to his game, a decent coach would use it. And yeah, he has the good jump shot and his touch around the basket is pretty solid. So like, maybe that comes with time. Yeah. What, you mean he has the, the good free throw percentage? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, and so... Yeah, you, you said he has the good jump shot. Oh, no, no. I meant free throw. At that yeah. point, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, 74% from the line. And it was 74 out of 100, which I also enjoyed. But it's... I mean, it's just so, it's so hard to think of, like, can, basically, can a guy whose current role is basically what DeAndre Jordan has been doing these last couple of years, like, can that work in the modern NBA? I think that it can, but if I had to put money on it, I wouldn't throw it to, uh, on him, like, let's say, like, getting to the level where with his defense, he can be like a top 15 center, like that sort of thing. To me, he, it's, Hayes is going to have to grow his offense a lot, and maybe he can, but that's a big thing to ask. And also, it's, it's hard because since he was was such a late bloomer we don't have the international like experience with him or hoop summit or any of that kind of stuff where maybe he does have more depth to his game but without that context it's just so hard to roll the dice and just watching him shoot free throws i actually and that that's a really good percentage for a teenage big yeah absolutely uh, i think he's probably going to develop a, a mid-ranger at some point in time um i mean in the finishing we should get some of these stats out there 77 percent at the rim in the yeah. half court and that's pretty ridiculous now only 17 percent usage i mean that's not not amazing and then uh, wh- one of the more disappointing things to me because you know as he, it's not like he's hanging out on the perimeter the way bowl bowl is only nine percent offensive rebounds i thought that really could have been a lot better i wasn't impressed he doesn't really have that quick second jump uh either like when he contests a shot defensively to then go get to the defensive glass to get a, a most a second tip he's not very quick off the floor if he's defending out in the perimeter in space to, to get his hands up and challenge or block jump shots you didn't see that much of that from him um and and then you know he'd try to box out but he's too skinny and would kind of get thrown around and you know it's kind of the worst of both worlds where he'd try to box out wouldn't succeed in boxing out and then also wouldn't be going for the rebound. now he did play next to this guy ozakowski who i think he was still around back in the jared allen days too uh, uh who is like you know a four who can shoot a little bit but he's also kind of a big bruiser type so that guy would get a lot of rebounds but uh you know overall you know i don't think he necessarily projects as a plus rebounder for his position so it's really all about blocking shots and then you know finishing around the rim and yeah as i said i think he has decent touch the post-ups i thought this was pretty funny too uh now granted he's a lot of these are posting up you know pretty much right inside the paint but he turned left shoulder 27 times and he turned right shoulder three times so this isn't exactly a guy who has like a bunch of moves in his bags you know it's very clear how totally inexperienced he is and i think there's almost no chance that he's going to contribute as a rookie it's going to be he is very very raw although he does have some some natural skills but other things don't come naturally to him just because you know it seems like he has not been playing at a high level for very long and that is in fact the case i have to mention this just because it amused me so much ozitkowski i looked it up he was in he he was in college when jared allen was there but i think that was his transfer year and he was transferring from tulane <laughs> i've had absolutely no contact with the tulane basketball program uh, unfortunately other than uh, i know a grad assistant there but uh other than that i i, have, I couldn't even tell you one player on their team uh, but now i think we can finally wrap things <laughs> up and uh we got one day before the draft not sure what we're gonna do tomorrow that remains to be seen and then of course we'll wrap up the draft on thursday so we will talk to y'all tomorrow night in some form or fashion till then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic 
Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.